Gates is a lecturer in liberal arts and visual cultures education at King's College London and author of The Computer Animated Film, available in all good bookshops. And I, Alex that is, am a senior lecturer in film and media studies at the University of Portsmouth and author of Encountering the Impossible, the fantastic in Hollywood fantasy cinema, available in even better bookshops. We do this podcast to provide audiences with an informative and hopefully entertaining guide through the ways in which you can not only enjoy fantasy and animation, but study it, examine it, explore it, and of course, make it and have a career in it. I hope you enjoy the show. listeners and welcome to another episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast. I'm Alex Sargent. And I'm Chris Holliday. Today, Chris, we are covering something slightly different than usual, a documentary. It is not necessarily an animated documentary, but it does have drawings oh, and animations yeah, in it. Yeah. Is, that, is that I've already fired the first shot of it? Okay. Um, but, but, it, but, it, but an interesting documentary that certainly, in, as you would say, is certainly about Damn, animation. That was my opening gambit. We're finally, we're actually doing, a, there's an ongoing gag on the podcast where it's like, is this film really about animation? Is yeah, it kind of yeah. reflect? That was my. It is fine. We've we've landed. We've done it on a film that is about animation. <laughs> yeah. So this is Life Animated, the uh, 2016 American documentary by Roger Ross Williams, which um, covers the life of Owen Suskind, um, a, an autistic man um, who has. Uh, uh, a relationship with the Disney Studios back mm-hmm. catalogue that the film explores and um, identifies as a key uh, source of pedagogy, a key source of kind of uh, self-expression within his sort of life and, and journey um, up until this point. So um, I think there's lots of things that I've got to say about fantasy, mythology. There's lots of things in the film about constructing mythology out of these kind of popular texts that struck my eye as someone interested in that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, so I actually don't really know where to start because okay. there's so much that one could say about uh, the idea of Disney classics, I think. The the film is about... It, it, it's lucky that he's not watching Rescuers Down Under. He's watching the classics. And I thought... So there's something around kind of the image of Disney and stuff. But also, um, yeah, obviously animation in terms of reenactment. Um, there's a line about animation being used to make sense of the world, which is kind of a common refrain, I think, with regards to animated documentary. Um, and stuff on kind of voice work and puppetry, which the film kind of dramatises in terms of this is how you construct an animated performance. Uh-huh. So, yeah, I, I sort of may touch on all of those or none of those. Oh, that but might be the only time you mention it. Yeah, yeah exactly. sure, sure. Well, luckily... We are joined by a very special guest who's going to help us uh, through the murky world of, of the movie and work out sort of what it's saying, if it's even saying yeah. anything. Um, we are joined, I'd like to be joined by Janet Harbord, who's Professor of Film Studies at Queen Mary University. Um, Janet's work explores the many ways in which the film creates, which film itself creates relationships between bodies, feelings and environments. Um, she's the author of countless texts, countless wonderful texts on this, including Film Cultures, The Evolution of Film and Eccentric Cinema. 
And for the last five years, which might be of interest to our discussion today, uh, Janet's been the lead investigator on a project called Autism Through Cinema, which explores the relationship uh, between uh, medical film and entertainment film um, in key moments throughout the 20th century and examining how certain bodies are made legible and others illegible through the kind of creative process and practice. Um, Janet's a member of the Centre for Film and Ethics at Queen Mary um, and has also just made a film about yeah. this subject um, called Autism Plays Itself, which we're going to hear more about later in the show. So, Janet, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, first of all. Hi, thanks for that great introduction. Yeah, so I've just I've just come to the end of the a project that's about um, cinema on autism, uh, funded by Welcome, um, and that I've co-run with my colleague here, the filmmaker Stephen Eastwood. Um, and it's a project that's been about exploring autism uh, not through representation, through its sort of typical, the typical way in which we tend to a- approach disability and otherness, um, but exploring what it is about cinema that has, um, that shares an affinity with an autistic sensibility. So we've been working with lots of different groups, um, project artworks in Hastings, um, different associations, community groups. Uh, to kind of co-create an idea of cinema uh, between academics, between autistic practitioners and artists. Um, that's produced some co-written articles, films, and, and so on. So we're sort of, we, we didn't want to come to cinema thinking about um, what's the truth about autism. And Stuart Murray, um, who writes a lot about autism, he has, he has an autistic son, um, writes a lot about autism and cinema and, and has argued, I think, quite convincingly that autism is seen as a, a kind of a problem to be solved or, or, or to be a condition to be understood through cinema. Um, and we've really come at it the other way around to think about how has neurotypicality mm. kind of framed our idea of cinema and limited it and how might we trace an autistic sensibility through cinema. Um, so this film today has some interesting uh, points of contact with with the, those sets of debates, and it's a film also that we programmed when we worked with the Barbican. We had a short series um, of films about autism and cinema um, a couple of years ago, and this was kind of in the middle of our program. Um, perhaps one of our more conservative choices, yeah. uh, but we had a lot of debate. That, that, that programme generated a lot of debate in, in media. We, had to, we were covered by The Independent, The Guardian, sort of trying to engage people in a discussion about what an autistic sensibility is. So I'm kind of approaching the, this film from that angle. Okay, yeah, I mean, uh, excellent. And, and I th- I'm, we've picked the film deliberately to kind of explore some of these wider issues. I think it's a film that people might have heard of it certainly did sort of the rounds a few years ago and yeah I think we there's lots to unpack within the film before before we get to it exactly I guess I'm going to ask a question perhaps on Chris's behalf which is the role of animation in 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 your kind of um mm. engagement with film I know animation was a key part of the of the of the autism through cinema project more broadly um could you say a little bit more about sort of how animation fits in with those various um projects and things like that yeah I mean one of our one of the members of the group, Alex Widdison, is an animator and he was the PhD student on the project. Um, and he has worked that scene between animated documentary or evocative mm. um, animated documentary. And uh, he he worked with autistic participants and created um, a sort of feedback loop where he would have conversations that he then drew and then would show these to the participant um, and they would work together on on what they felt about that that animation um, and he made uh, he's made a number of films a short and uh, and a longer version that's in um, still in production 
Um, so I think the idea of animation in the project is that it can kind of script anything. <laughs> uh, sort of it's the, the opposite of the indexical image. It's one basic way of thinking about it, that, that the indexical kind of locks us into something that is a version of, of the real or a shared reality. Whereas what we were trying to explore in the project was uh, something that wasn't wasn't a shared reality that might actually be more singular in its in its form. Mm. So, I mean, not to get too kind of simplistic in, in drawing some of the threads out of that, but it sounds like there's something about animation's ability to represent the subjective or to, or to or even maybe just to dislocate the objective <coughs> might be the way of thinking about it. We think of cinema, right, as this, as you say, indexical, photographic, what's the, the redemption of objective reality is the famous Bazan quote, right? Mm. I can see that having a lot of charged words if you're talking about issues of neurodiversity and neurotypicality, as in what is this objective uh, world we're all living, what does it look like, and I guess key, what does it sound and feel like, right, which is kind of a lot of what this film's engaging with and I suspect what you've been talking about. So is, is it that that makes animation an interesting vehicle to explore that it kind of dislocate it it, it it isn't starting from that assumption that we've kind of embedded into the kind of more photographic um origins of cinema yeah i think that that's a really major part of what we were doing uh yeah i like the idea of dislocation from from an idea of shared reality um yes it was it was that but i think it's i think that that, that animation has also been important in the project for for bringing together a kind of sensory apprehension of the world so it's not as though um it's trying to be in the shoes of someone who is autistic mm. and i think that's where life animated for me kind of falls down a bit that there are those moments that that actually kind of shoehorn owen into a mm -hmm. particular position like as a child as a typical child watching disney oh look, look what happens to him it all goes wrong and that's the autistic kind of uh, moment that everyone's trying to work with for the rest of the film. Um, but I think animation in the way that Alex was using it on our project was to um, kind of engage with cinema's many capacities to make the audience feel different things, not necessarily in an autistic way, but just to make us aware of the way that neurotypicality limits where we look on the screen, for example. So. To bring this into the, our film of the day, yeah. um, it sounds like there are two ways that animation functions in this film. And actually, we've, we've hit on perhaps the less obvious one in the film itself, because it's certainly in terms of screen time, it's mm -hmm. the one that takes mm -hmm. up most of them, which is this idea. So this is a film that sort of, what is it? It's telling us the story of Owen now. So it's sort of about him moving out of his parents' house yeah. and, and getting a flat for himself. And there are breakups and all the sort of things that 23-year-olds go through, yeah. um, uh, whilst interspersed with the kind of story of his life up until this point. And the story of his life is very much told through this prism of his relationship to Disney movies. Yep. But to represent, so we, we, we'll get to the, to, to the, the Disney Dumbo elephant in the room, I guess, in a minute. Uh, but, uh, but it sounds like where we are at the moment is to talk about the way in which his early life is represented in the film, which is largely through drawings and kind of limited animation, if I'm using that term r roughly. He, uh, he, sort of. Uh, there are two... One of the things that, that I was thinking of was, OK, how is animation being used in the film yeah. in those two ways? So one is, of course, interspersing lines of dialogue with the, the interviews and the kind of testimonies with footage from Disney films in a way that I, I didn't think, I don't necessarily think he's watching that film at that time. They are making that, yeah. that, they're making that kind of connection. Okay, so there's the use of sort of Disney 
the Disney classics, let's say. Um, and then there, are, there is the sort of the animated film that is made seemingly alongside it that is interspersed at various moments that are supposed to more directly... Well, perhaps they serve the same role, actually, as the, as the animated sure. the Disney sequences, um, trying to sort of, yeah, visualise in in, ter- in ways that are very familiar, I think, from the, the register of animated documentary, being using using animation as, in terms of solving a problem by, by um, evoking his particular experiences of what he's saying and, and sort of trying to... And also not not only what he's saying, it's often done through the father. Mm-hmm. The father's yeah. stories are often animated. And, and that I found interesting. It's not just we're going to animate Owen's experiences and sort of make that connection. I thought it was interesting that they're now just animating to any story that's being told about Owen. Um, so I thought that was interesting, the way that these little short films, these little short sequences are being used to sort of... They, they're, they're supposed to be... They're supposed to do what the home videos do at the same time. Sure. So yeah, so Janet, could you you mentioned that you there were some you have some issues with this movie <laughs> in some ways. I have some issues with this movie in yeah. some ways. So let's talk through some of these some of our issues. Uh, <laughs> this is your favourite what, bit what's now, your, isn't it? Yeah. We talk about our issues. Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So those sequences, how do they strike you from someone that's worked with and 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 with people trying to kind of do something at least comparable to that kind of exercise of representing experience through animation? Yeah. Well, I I think. I think that there's there's a there's a you know there's a logic to this that the, the it's it's a kind of mainstream documentary that sets out to provide a, a story of a family with an autistic son and there and it it kind of is a, it's a triumph over adversity narrative to a certain extent yeah. um, with Disney at the center and so I think it's part of its kind of marketing populist yeah, appeal yeah. this is how they got funding you know it, um, and the the type of Disney that they pick up on, as you're saying, it's classic Disney. It's it's got a very wide reach in terms of audience knowledge of those stories, right? And, yeah. and, and some of them exist in book forms and all sorts of. I didn't think things. I was being cynical, but I, I, there is a sort of no. Okay, fine. But, but exactly, <laughs> exactly as you're saying. Um, yeah, that there is a certain type of Disney being yeah. used yes. as a reference point. Yeah, Sorry. yeah, and possibly even the Disney that was, you know, associated with the with the parents' childhood or their experience of Disney. So there's something yeah. that maybe it's been passed on. I'm almost certain a lot of those were not available on a home video to watch because Disney very famously keeps keeps some back. So you can't buy a lot of yep. these things on. So I was like, I don't think he's watching these. I don't think they're the ones he's watching because they're not available. Um, anyway. Uh, he was watching on VHS, though. Yeah, we see, We see VHS yeah, a yeah, lot, yeah. So which I quite appreciate. I, I have things to say about VHS, but we'll... There's so many places to start in this one. This is why. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. But I would... Just going back to that moment of the of the film's early construction of his life as a child yes. where you get... Disney's brought in to, to kind of fill mm-hmm. in the emotional backstory for what's happening um, for the parents and for him and then we get the kind of real time but we also get the story told in uh, amateur footage that yeah. the parents have taken so that's a kind of third mm-hmm. a third spoke in this where um, the there's a, there's a different form of authenticity that, that is from the parents point of view I think that there's something a bit prob- problematic about point of view in this film and the animation is blurred with that and I think thinking about who's Desire for Disney, whose whose Disney it is, whether it's the parents or yeah, Owens, yeah. Um, and again, whose point of view it is when we're seeing the home footage. Of course, it's it's the parents, and I think Owen is very much at the centre of this film, but through other people's eyes, including through the animation. So I think he adopts his, uh, he creates or crafts his own language by adopting 
Disney formats, but I think there's there's a real really strong sense in the film of uh, the, the parents' oversight of all of this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, is it's sort of like the the parents' view of Owen rather than Owen's view of Owen, yeah. and that doesn't really shift for me through the film. Yeah. I had a, I had a, a question based on the sort of when animated when when when. Some, when something like Waltz with Bashir is entirely animated and then has the live action sequence at the or the little shot at the end, and we had this conversation when we did Waltz with Bashir, uh-huh. but when when a film uses those that sort of video, that home video footage, that amateur mm. footage, alongside these animated, I, I mean, I, going back on what I said earlier, are we supposed to read them, or do you think the film is is asking us to read them as equally as realistic and authentic, or are they trying to make a claim that? actually perverse animation is the more authentic because of that freedom and that flexibility and that versatility or is it is it saying that this is what the home video it's making a distinction between the two that the home video footage is serving this kind of role with the voiceover playing mm. over and them talking about the, the sword fight and all this sort of stuff versus the animation which is okay we know you know it's not real but it's still well, we know you know it's not real or photographic but it's no more or no less authentic so i just wondered given that there are three as you say those three there's the testimony and the sort of the live what's happening now in 2016 or whatever. Yes. There's the amateur footage, the home video footage, and the animation. I just wonder what. And you're... then there's the animation that they've done to represent Owen's life through the parasites, yes. as you say. And then yeah. there's the intercepts of Disney yeah. animation. Just so are we, really how fun. are we supposed to take that collage of different mixed media, basically? Mm. I just wondered if you if you had any because I I don't know how to take yeah, it. And I don't know what the film is saying about. The registers of authenticity. Yeah, I think I think that the animation that they make of Owen yeah. uh, is, I think it does operate as a kind of authentic text yeah. in 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 that collage, as you as you nicely name it. Um, in that he, um, in in those moments we get his flights of fantasy, but they're mostly about feeling. And I think yeah. given the um, framework in which autism is positioned as uh, a condition in which people don't express feelings, um, that there's sort of social communication difficulty, um, that 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 appears in the film as the inside story. This is this is Owen's subjectivity mm. and we, we get to it in this way and we can and it's appropriate to animate it because that's where all of his feelings are registered or lie. So so I think there's something yeah. about that. But I but I think it's also telling that that even though Owen grows up in the course of the film, he's still animated as a child. And that Ah yes. That's that's kind of where the problem is, I think. That that in this space I think Owen is particularly credited with childish feelings in a way we we all could be, right? We all we all draw on our childhoods as these formats, these schemas where yeah. we learn how to relate to people and what frightens us and, and these things are kind of lodged in our psyches and our bodies. But I think in, in this film it kind of tends to give the sense that Owen never grows up and that's very much the, the, the dialogue around him leaving home. You know, will he be all right? Is he is he going to grow up? He has those conversations with his brother about sex and so yeah. on. And then his brother reveals that he's quite anxious about the responsibility of Owen as, as when his parents go. Yeah, yeah, exactly, all of that. So Owen becomes a sort of a problem child in his adulthood, I think, and that the animations support that reading. Yeah, well, the, I suppose the, the, the not growing up, this is, what, this, is where I, this is where I was most cynical 
corner. I was thinking about how the film is using because the first film that he watches, you see posters of Hunchback of Notre Dame, you see Aladdin, but the first film he watches is Peter Pan. Yeah, that's the first VHS that he's sitting and watching. And I was thinking, okay, so we're seeing the footage. Is this what Owen is watching, or is this? I was like, is this meaning being created? Because you also have shots of the television, so he is watching something. But it, there was there was an element of calculation where I thought, oh, the Disney films are being used quite usefully, actually. I have two things to say about yes. that. Now we're getting cynical. Yeah. Uh, the, fir- the first oh. is that... Look at that, his face. That Peter, that Peter Pan <laughs> bit's really interesting because it, 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 it may... This is perhaps a thing we can talk about in a bit about the kind of the use of the Disney canon or the, or yeah, the attempt yeah. to canonise it in that sense in that yeah. it, it's, of course he's watching the bit where they're in the nursery. He's not watching the racially problematic bit where they spend 20 minutes pretending to be um, indigenous Americans, yeah. you know, um, <laughs> because that bit wouldn't really work very well, would it? Um, you know, so, so it's about... How how Owen is perceived to use the Disney movies, and it's and it's rarely when they're at their most uh, abrasively problematic. It's usually when they're at their most cuddly, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, which I think is interesting to talk about. And the second thing is actually I'm not quite sure that's right in terms of that's not the first film we see him watching. The first film I've got with the very right at the beginning, you see a very early shot of him as a small right baby. right pressing his hand up against Fantasia. Right. <laughs> um, and I thought that's very interesting because that's too, because that first shot seems to be making a claim that this small infant is is excited by the colours, mm-hmm. the, the the drawings, the, the animatedness yeah. of the films. And of course you use Fantasia to do that because it's the film where I don't think I don't think a twelve-year-old sits through Fantasia, but a child might because they're not watching it for narrative. Yeah. But by the time we get to Peter Pan, he's starting to mythologize. So the function, the use function of the Disney movies actually shifts by, by, and they're not quite sure what that link is. Is it that there's something about the the the, the drawn nature of it, the animated nature of it, the colorized worlds that 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 mm. he is using um, yeah. as part, or is it something broader about kind of Disney mythology and things like that? I guess it can be both, but I'm interested in that shift mm. in register. No, you know, you're right. Actually, above, I've got a brief shot of him as a child watching Fantasia. Yeah. Okay. I was thinking about Persona. <laughs> <laughs> um, the child and Persona. I was like, oh, this is Persona. Perhaps healthier, but um, sure. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean... I don't, yeah, I, I don't know. I think the animation this is interesting, like the, the, the use of Fantasia, certainly. Do you have any thoughts earlier that? Um... Uh, I think I think the reference to Fantasia earlier on is anchoring the film very kind of neatly in the history of, of a particular form of animation that runs through mm-hmm. an American studio that's very mm-hmm. dominant through through the twentieth century into today. So for me, that was that. It, it's in a particular tradition. It's saying something about mainstream do- mainstream animation um, and all of the conventions and the problematic conventions that go yeah. with that, as you say. I mean, another problematic convention is 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 gender and mm-hmm. in these animations, and that I mean that follows through also in some of the comments that the brother makes about being a red blooded American yeah. man, yeah, sure, and, sure, sure. and when when you know his brother isn't showing the same sexual aptitude for sex in the same way, you know mm-hmm. there there are sort of things like that that are that resonate between the animation and and the real world converse, the documentary conversations um, that aren't really. Well, that aren't picked up at all. Yeah, but that's where he kind of the film when it brings it back to him. I think the closest film that he gets connected to is Hunchback of Notre Dame, which is one of my favourites. But it uses it in a very particular way. One because the ending of the film is 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 not the happy ending. Quasimodo actually brings together Phoebus and Esmeralda, so he's the mediator between the romantic couple of which he has no part. Um, but the film then uses a lot of in terms of like the notion of a freak. The film draws from 
those sequences of Hunchback of Notre Dame and tries to align Quasimodo with with, yeah. with Owen and sort of says this is. I don't know. There's also something, I'd, you know, the sidekick element of all of this is particularly interesting because the sidekicks, there's scholarship written on the specifically the sidekicks. There's an article um, by Lynn uh, Lonrot, who uh, is an article called I Don't Have Skull or Bones, Minor Characters in Disney Animation. And she argues that minor characters or sidekicks are always spaces, are always much more interesting. Mm-hmm. Like they're always doing something. That's where the plasmaticness of the body never went away because it's all the, the sidekick operates according to a different set of laws and a different set of rules. Um, and bodies do different things and stuff like that. So I can see what the film is is doing. And I, yeah, I didn't definitely didn't want to be so cynical with regards to the way it uses Disney. But it's it is interesting the accents that are placed on certain scenes and certain sequences yeah. to give a sense of of Owen's experience through that animation, but also how that animation somehow f- reflects perfectly what he's feeling at that time. And that's that was the bit of the. The jarring that I I don't know. Yeah, I I think that I think your point about the sidekicks is is really interesting, and that it's it's the part of the film that I think is the richest when we see him drawing. Yeah. Um, when we when we see that he's gone, you know, we hear from his father that he's disappeared downstairs, and when the father finds all these these drawings, it's a really nice moment that here here he is, he's having his own engagement. Mm. He's identified himself in this uh, range of different characters across films who who are the sidekicks. Um, and I think they are fantastic characters. There's, there's a really nice essay by Giorgio Agamben um, called The Assistants that picks up on these these characters. Um, and he mentions Kafka's assistants. It's, mm. There's a range of literary assistants that he draws on here as well. As, you know, they're, they're kind of, they're, they're characters that have a lot of gradation in terms of their, their kind of, their morality and so on. Um, they're quite often lazy, but they're also witty and they're clever and they're, you know, they're, they're good at kind of being in the moment. And I think there's something that's really powerful about Owen's identification with these characters where he's sort of he's he's realizing as as well that he's not a hero in terms of mm-hmm. a kind of neurotypical mm. figuration of uh of of a of a cast um so he positions himself somewhere else through these characters and i i was hoping that when i first saw this film that the film would go somewhere else with that and we might actually get owen's version of animation mm-hmm. we might see what he animates rather than than these versions of him as yeah. a child that we keep getting and there is something listed as uh, a film by him that's released in the same year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I've never seen it. I don't know where where it is, but I'd be interested in yeah. in that if it does exist as a, a short text of his animations. Yeah, unsurprising is the podcast's uh, fantasist. Like that's the bit that kind of struck me as well. This kind of quite complicated, nuanced mythology that he'd sort of built up through these drawings, and there's this he's the he sees himself as the protector of the sidekick. Yeah, that was really interesting because. Well, and it doesn't really explore exactly the kind of the depths of this mythology. But the question it makes me ask is, okay, who is he? Who is he protecting them from? Um, and yeah, and what's his role as protector? And, uh, because because the other thing about sidekicks is that, and I think this is where I suspect a slightly more knotty relationship and more human relationship reveals is that there's a there's a lot of anger and a lot or a lot of potential anger and resentment about identifying yourself with a sidekick in these movies because what you're recognizing as well is that these movies that these movies aren't aren't for you in a way he's having mm. to find himself in these movies yeah. rather than being for him despite he's obviously seen them lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of times and this idea that the, the value of the sidekick it only really matters in the story in terms of their use value to the 
to the main protagonists. Yeah. So in many ways, he is kind of positioned as sidekick in this movie in that he is often seen mm-hmm. through yeah. the perspective and the use value of those yeah. around him who are in more positions of power, through whether it's a parental figure or the kind of the, the, the healthcare workers that work with him or, or whatever it is. I think there's more to... I don't know, obviously we don't... I don't I don't know any more about that relationship, but I'd like to have seen more of that because I suspect there's a, a less cosy but very helpful way of thinking through some of these issues that, that the mm. film doesn't seem really that interested in exploring. No, I think it likes to keep the the accessible parts of autism or making autism sort of accessible, what I, call, what I would say is legible to an audience. Yes. So we get we get him framed through through lines, through scenes that will explain something about autism. And, it, you know, Stuart Murray would say, well, that's, that's absolutely what the majority of autism films are, are about, are explaining um, the main character's feelings about looking after an autistic child or and that's what we get here right? we get with the mm. parents disappointment at the beginning it's a tragedy it's a, I mean it's a terrible version of autism we get in the early part of it and you can't help I can't help wondering what Owen might think in watching this right how, how, how does he experience his parents sense of autism as a tragedy for example um, there's lots of lines about Owen vanishing yes. and he's still in there yes. as if there's this sort of Locked foreign in. invasion yeah. taking place to their to the son well yeah. in a way they are describing that right there's a vision of their son that they feel they still clearly I think is lost is lost yeah. um, and that what they've got is a kind of partial this is I'm trying to frame their language really but that sort of partial restoration mm. of their son through his relationship to these movies but you're right I, it, there's a that struck me as a as a problematic way of, fr- of phrasing this. Yeah. So it's like autism is a, an imposter. You know, it's like a, a, a bad character in one of these films that's come and taken their son. And there's 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 yeah. that that sort of plays along, and they the parents gradually acclimatise themselves to that by themselves using Disney language as, mm-hmm. as a means to get to their their lost son who's yeah. been. Who's been captured? So there's a whole thing, in, uh, the, the whole autism story has been Disneyfied, if you like, in terms yeah. of the parental view of of, of loss and um, and binary, binary binary figurations. Like there's nothing about autism that seems particularly valuable in this film. That's the the discussion of echolalia, for example. You know, when they go quite early, they take early on, they take their son to. Um, an educational psychologist who who says actually echolalia is just a sort of it's an echoing it's a very typical thing that autistic children do um that he's not communicating with you he's just repeating things um but actually you know when you read a scholar like rem yergo whose book um uh, authorism a- authoring autism talks about echolalia through their own experience uh, as an autistic child of of um of, of using lines from films in lots of different ways, like they used uh, uh, the script of Airplane. It was it would come out frequently <laughs> in in mo- different moments. Meaning, you know, sometimes in the supermarket it was about being overwhelmed. Sometimes it was about being fearful or excluded. All sorts of different ways in which that's actually quite a flexible thing to be doing from an autistic perspective. But here we get it like you know, it's either communication or it's not. You know. Um, it's it's one or the other according to the psychologist and to the parent. So there's something that seems like really quite old-fashioned about the film's take on on autism. Um, that yeah, and I think it's to do with the fact I, fact that Owen isn't given a voice in it really. Mm. 
I just based on your um, just I mean I don't think I've written as many notes about any film as I have this one I said, there's so much to say and I'm so pleased we've got you to, to help say it. Um, the, the, the point you made about animation as an, as an imposter I thought was interesting because the, the thing that really struck me about the film is the, the, the other performance like there's lots of scenes where obviously Owen is performing and then the parents obviously that's that's the key moment of the film where um, the father performs as Iago through the kind of puppet hand puppet and sort of, I was, so I was thinking about animation's relationship to, to puppetry and stuff, which we've, we've talked about previously and stuff. Um, and then there's a sort of kind of great sequence where you have the original voice actors from Aladdin come in and do do a couple of scenes and stuff like that. And and and, and so there's a register of animation and, and, and performance that that is interesting in relation, and also being able to do the voices. And that's that's a kind of common yes. that seems to be <clears> part of what they're doing. Is how accurately can I get the voices, these canonical voices? I'm, I'm just wondering that. It, it, if animation, this sort of an, uh, autism, sorry, being an imposter, that somehow it's not valuable or it's not, there's an there's an emptiness, as you say, like Owen is is still in there somewhere. There's a language around the way that autism is framed. I just wonder whether or not there's, there, rather than celebrate animation, is does the film end up having an, an inverse thing, which is like, well, this is just this is just like putting on voices and just like drawings and just, and I'm trying to. That, that that's an element that I was trying to get my what's it is it really celebrating the capacity of animation to to unlock Owen or is it just saying animation is is sort of a like what you were saying about the repetition of all it is is just repeating there's an artificiality that's I don't know I don't know where I'm going with this but there's mm. it, I don't necessarily think it's cele it's not the, the the discourse on on animation in the film is not entirely celebratory even though we can talk about how it renders all these subjective experiences and and that's that was the that was how he was unlocked as a human actually it ends up the outcome of some of these things is not entirely positive I think that animation is being used as a sort of I don't know there's a kind of frenzy to it. Well, there's that back to the point you referenced about the brother's testimony about worrying about his yeah. about Owen's sexuality and how to talk to him about sex and all this sort of stuff. And he makes the point that I don't I don't know how to do that because because there's no sex in Disney movies. Maybe I'll have to show him some Disney porn or something. Yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> and so it's the idea. I guess that the I think the film certainly wants to make the claim that animation. Disney animation, yeah, in particular, not just animation. Yeah, yeah. Disney animation, and also helped. these eight films. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. These eight yeah. films, yeah, has helped in. He's using quotation marks again, everybody. Uh, unlock. Yeah, yeah, as they're saying. Yeah. Um, but there is a lamentation or tragedy to that, that the film can't help engage with because unlock unlocking a person through Disney creates a Disneyfied human. Human. Yeah. And so what we have is a human that you don't know well at the way the film presents I'm talking about yeah, obviously yeah. I don't know what the real Owen is like um, but the way the film presents him is this kind of disnified human who is unable to access even if he wanted to certain aspects of life because it doesn't appear in a Disney yeah. movie and I don't think the film I think the film is willing to at least pose that as a kind of tragic end note because it's not completely celebratory but I don't think it's willing to interrogate that Entirely, mm. Mm. Well, not entirely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I agree. <laughs> yeah, I think that's. I think that's right. And I think that the the film often seems to move in one direction and then end up, ends up <laughs> kind of doing a, a U turn with it. And I think the approach to animation is like that. Like when you come to this film, you know, life animated. It's a great title, and it's a. It, it has lots of promise, I think, for thinking about autism, and it speaks also to you know the stereotype around 
autistic people not having imagination, being monotropic, being very focused on one thing that is quite factual, your kind of Rain Man type typical mm. character. And here you have, a, a, you know, full engagement of of, uh, of a man with with animation with Disney. Um, it's, it suggests that it's going to take that stereotype somewhere else and, and show us something much more flexible and nuanced. But in fact, it drives us straight into very scripted scenes of, of a limited range from a, a very small group of films. So it's, it sort of delivers the opposite. Um, yeah. So, so I'm, I'm interested in whether I think this is a imposition by the family. Mm -hmm. As in, is this... A consequence of oh he loves Disney let's you know because he of course children love Disney um, give him Disney or whether this is a f it's a something about the, the production itself because obviously there's a converse I don't know the production history of this movie I don't know if anyone uh, if we do here but I know there's a there's obviously some sort of discussion with the Disney studio mm -hmm, about mm -hmm. the, the use of the clips yeah, the, the use yeah. of things they even draw sort of new versions of the characters don't they in these original drawings yep. um, all this sort of stuff appears so there's got to have been some sort of yeah, discussion behind the scenes there's one bit of the film that absolutely fascinated me and it's just a small shot and it's when he's unpacking his VHS he's moved into the new apartment yeah, yeah. and the first thing he does is he unpacks his VHS and as I say that I wanted to say stuff about VHS because there's obviously something about ownership of VH it's not just about watching the movie it's about owning the movies yeah it's about yeah, media, like yeah, yeah maybe think of sort of Barbara Klinger's work on kind of DVD possession and yeah like absolutely um uh, and the VHSs as well they have to be VHSs yeah they can't be DVDs the film you know, wouldn't work in its DVD yeah, it has to be, to be. big uh, kind of big yeah. American style boxes of in it that are like the size of like you know yeah. um, well my front room like, you know, it's, um, it's just analog you know yeah, VHS yeah, yeah. is grainy and old and well worn it's, it's but, Wally but yeah. there's a shot of him putting the films out yeah. and it lasts two seconds but it's there's a Disney movie there's Shrek yeah and there's Matilda yeah, yeah. I and, I, and, and I was like hang on yeah. hang on so it's not just Disney movies. No. It's it's one. It's DreamWorks as well. Oh, yeah. And two. It's it's there's it's child. It's children's movies. It's obviously positioning that again. I don't know what his other DVD rack. Maybe he's got Die Hard on the other rack. Oh. Wouldn't surprise me. You know. Yeah. But, but maybe he's got Die Hard with a Vengeance because that's great. Anyway. <laughs> um, anyway. But but that really kind of shot up a series of questions because it's yeah, like okay. Yeah. So is the canonization going on in the production here? Is this child actually not... Sorry, he's not a child. I've fallen into the film's trap there. This 23-year-old man, is he watching actually lots of different movies? One of them... Is he a movie fan? Mm -hmm. Or is he a Disney fan? Because Shrek, brother... The brother wants to talk to him about more spiky things. Shrek starts to get us there. Matilda, interesting. A story of a, of a, of a child who's different, who's ostracised by their parents. Yes. Um, interesting he would identify with that. Reading a lot into all of this, um, but... I don't know. It, it threw up the possibility that that this is not someone who is obsessed with Disney so much as obsessed with cinema. Yeah. Or even animation, um, yeah, not yeah. Disney or, or animation. Well, yeah, but well, I mean, Matilda isn't even animated. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Thoughts? Um, yeah, I mean, the, just a bit of the production history is that the, the, the film is based on a book that the father wrote. Right, He's yes. a journalist, so Ron Suskind. And the producer of... Don't look up. Apparently, right? Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. Just anyway. to clarify that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there are lots of connections in media, and presumably that's partly how the film got made because it's someone with the capacity to to mm. organise in that way. Um, but I think there was there's also a story that's that's about how the film was made and then shown to Disney Studio and and Disney. You know, they all kind of got watery eyes like the mother does constantly through the film, yeah. um, and said, "Yes, we'll you know we'll, we'll we'll grant the rights for you to to use." 
extracts yeah. from the films. Um, so you might you might be onto something in thinking that Disney might have asserted a particular version of, of animation history. Doesn't sound like Disney. Or, 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 or one sells the movie in the way that. One wants to yep. sell it if your one knows that what needs to be done to get permission. The, yes, like absolutely. Right, yeah, you know? yeah. It reminds me. I, I think Disney have a history, and, and you know, we can be as cynical as you want about it. I don't really. Awesome. In my imagination, <laughs> I don't really believe in misty-eyed uh, Disney executives, um, unfortunately. But hey, there's a there's a nuance where they could be both making sound commercial decisions and getting misty-eyed about it. Yeah. Um, but it reminds me of things like there's you know there's. Um, in the middle of Great Ormond Street, you know, there's um, there's a Disney coral reef playground, and it's all and it's made by uh, it's all the licensed Disney characters. There's the Little Mermaid in there. There's lots. So there's lots of attempt. There's I mean, there's probably other lots of examples around the world, but Disney like to be the solution to uh, childhood uh, sickness, for want of a better word. However, we define that culturally or physically or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something in that in that. It would be a more complicated narrative for the Disney studio mm. if Disney was one of many different movies of mm. which um, this works with. Mm. And it's interesting that the parents, at least in this film, only talk about his his relationship to Disney. Yeah, I mean, I guess it sort of it, it polarizes, doesn't it? That that sense of life into well, here's the harsh reality of sickness or. If you perceive autism to be a condition that doesn't have this deficit, um, you know, here's Disney that kind of supplements life with something that is, is uh, you know, that is pleasurable and outside of that, that those limitations. Hmm. Well, well and, and certainly, yeah, how far do I want to go with this? But yeah. I, I certainly think... I guess it, it raises that question you raised at the beginning, Janet. Is, is this is the is is Owen interested in Disney because he's genuinely interested in Disney, or do the parent if the parents gave him lots of Disney movies from a childhood and those are the movies he's consumed and found a relationship with? I guess this is true of all our childhood uh, yeah. obsessions and things like that. Yeah. The way, you know, no matter no matter who you are, to an extent you are given the things by your parents that they think you will get something out of yeah. based on their associations with that rather than the things that you can genuinely find a meaning for but but usually what happens in childhood if that happens is that you find your kind of own punky mm. edges to that mm. you know yeah um, <laughs> yeah i think I th- I th- I, yeah you well hopefully you do and i think we do see we do see owen at times with engaging with the films when we were just talking about the vhs um, moments where we actually see him watching stuff quite early on. It, I I love that scrolling that he does with the remote that he mm. just you know scrubs through the VHS uh-huh. in a way that you it's very different from the look of scrubbing through a DVD yeah, yeah. or streaming. Yeah, so um, actually, why are we saying DVD like that's the thing everyone's doing these days? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was the MP4s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but but it but it has that feeling that he you know he knows exactly where he's gonna where he wants to get to, and it's very physical. He's sort of thumb on the remote in that way, and he scrubs through, gets to the scene, watches that, runs with it, then moves on to the next one. There's there's something about that physicality that also gets lost in the film. It gets to be about the content of the line and the emotional mm. emotional uh, connection because that's the language that the parents have found of, of connecting with him. But actually there's his connection with the films that is much more about repetition and soothing and pleasure and something, mm-hmm. something else. Mm. 
Oh yeah, yeah. I did mean to. He obviously has some relationship with these movies, but yeah. I just wonder if it's a little bit messier than the film. Uh, oh, for sure. Presents. Yeah, I'm sure it must be right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I was trying to think of um, yeah, kind of scholarship on. Uh, <laughs> not to ruin the experience of watching the film, but like, <laughs> I like on cinephilia, you know, because he got at points he, he goes for a job interview at a cinema or ends up working at the cinema. Uh-huh. We yes. get to do our bomb reference because there's a poster of Spectre in the cinema. Is so that okay. good? Yeah. Very good. Very good. Um, very good. Tick that off the list. Tick that off the list. Uh, if only they were showing an anniversary screening of the Wizard of Oz, sure. which would be great. Um, <laughs> so, <Okay. laughs> um, the the um, his cinephilic sort of tendencies, his status as collector, as kind of media archivist, as fan as well. Mm. Um, the fact he sets up this Disney film club and there's sort of a fan community. So there's that that's that feeds into everything. But kind of scholarship on on cinephilia and and the, the particular sort of. Uh, Thomas L. Sasser would say kind of the videophilia of kind of connect, collecting and pausing and rewinding and the, the pleasure in, in that grainy image and the well-worn VHS that it makes perfect sense that the film he may have a DVD collection but that's not that doesn't again it's difficult to be I'm sorry for being cynical maybe Disney just invites the question of cynicism but there's a sort of the VHS is really important to how the the kind of contrast between the grainy film uh, the grainy home videos, the grainy Disney videos, and then the kind of talking head testimonies now of the brother and the parents and all that sort of, stuff. and then the footage at the very very end where he's he's giving that talk about about autism and stuff, and which includes my favourite moment because he gives the talk and then he does something that I wish we should all do at the end of conference papers. He just goes like that, <laughs> hands in the air, and I was like, that's really great. That's how we should end our papers yeah. or our lectures. Thanks everyone. Um, so yeah, so uh, but, but uh, Disney and and. I don't know, this kind of cinephilic culture around Disney. And as I, as I mentioned it earlier, I mean, I, 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 this isn't cynical, but Disney has a very particular relationship to home videos and keeping things in their, their, their kind of vault, this mysterious place. And then they release these anniversary features at particular times and makes Disney films very difficult. So he's got this perfect archive of Disney features that he can kind of work with. So this, the film is saying something, I think, whether it's whether it's mm-hmm. positive or not, but it's, you know, the, the, the pleasure in consuming... And, and, and physical media and of course big debates around Disney Plus at the moment and the removal of material from these platforms so actually having this arc of that's actually one of the first things when he moves into his new place there is a real close-up of him aligning up all of his VHSs as you said it's not about kind of unpacking all the it's get that this is where the, the home video is going to go and this is the this is the sort of media setup so I quite like I quite like that element of the of the film I'm glad you mentioned the, the Disney Club Yes, because I I would love to have seen more of that. Mm, yeah. Because yeah. at first I thought, oh wow, that's uh, uh, you know, a lot of what I wrestle with when we when we do pop, well, we, you know, we, are, we we write about popular media, right? But 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 uh, but but we are quite cynical about a lot of it. But it's that capacity of just because of its sheer popularity and and pervasiveness of providing spaces like the Disney Club where people can come together to talk about a shared interest. They can warp the, warp is not the right word, they can mold the texts into things that are useful for them, just like Owen does with this kind of, you know, this whole mythology of the sidekicks. And I thought, this looks like a really interesting space that I would like to sit in. The shots you get of it, though, make it seem a bit less, we get one one where he shows them a clip from The Lion King and asks them what the message of the movie is, which is a bit didactic and a bit pedagogic, and uh, I don't know if that's typical or not. And then the other one is where 
the various cast of Aladdin turn up and do a live performance, which does look fun. But it, again, I, I was hoping for somewhere. I, would, I was hoping for some some drawing, some some interactivity, some some cult, some some organic cultural happening in that room, and it, and it never really happens. No, I mean, and I think I, I I think that's connected to this idea of repetition and and reenactment. And I think that there's, uh, I mean, I think. You know, there's a, there's a lot of pleasure in remembering, repeating, reenacting films. How many people do you know who know chunks of the script from With Nail and I, or, sure. or yeah. <laughs> lots of other? Not me. I haven't seen it because I've never seen anything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Carry on. Seen it, but, no. uh, yeah. Monty Python. Monty Python. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's in another our case, one. View to a Kill. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I know Whatever. less. Whatever. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Good one, uh, Al. Yeah. So, but. That you know, we don't pathologize that. That's taken to be it's just, it, it's just a yeah. thing, right? That people repeat things because it's pleasurable. They they are really reliving a moment. Um, every time you repeat it, is actually different because you're in a different yeah. place, perhaps with different people. And I think that that moment of that club is part of that. It's about looking at the different moments that are pleasurable, sharing that with other people, getting their takes. Um, and reenactment's quite a sophisticated thing, actually. When we you know when we reperform something, we see the seams of how it's been put to get put together in the first place so when we get the guy coming in to do the voicing it's really interesting watching him uh-huh. do the voices mm. of, a, of, of a, an animated character you know we get that collision of his his body his his expression when he's doing that and and the voice so it's actually quite a quite a complex um, version of, of repetition that the film begins to get into and then again I think it like you say it kind of closes that down but I think that there's, some, there's an engagement of autism to cinephilia to reenactment to forms of a kind of very much about feelings that you have and about films and pleasure taken in them that the, the, the film opens up but doesn't kind of pursue enough for me mm. anyway No it's, it's only because those sequences of, of Iago and, um, and Jafar Revoicing their characters twenty odd years, whatever later, um, yeah, twenty odd years later, um, the, and this is, and then then we'll be done with the cynicism. But around around twenty fifteen, twenty sixteen, they've released Zootopia, and then uh, Moana. That's when Disney started to produce the videos of like inside the recording booth of like Dwayne the Rock Johnson doing the voices and all the Zootopia people. Yeah, and so there's something. Like that that's become a really important pleasure of animated, like the behind the scenes. Right. You get it with a lot with stop motion films now where you have the green screen and the stop motion and the sort of rapid speed of these characters moving, the animators doing all the labour and stuff and, and the sort of the rise of, of these kinds of behind the scenes videos and voice work and recording sessions and, and how these performances are constructed. That's become an increasingly important while while voice work and we've talked about this before in terms of star voices and celebrity voices and stuff. Um it's definitely become a more prominent element of the selling of these movies, I mm-hmm. think. And often they come out not after the films are released, but before the films are released. So you're seeing this footage of them and then the film will be coming soon. So it's just a really interesting... And this is the same year. This is the same year as Moana 2016. So there's an interesting sort of... The, 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 the way we like seeing how animated performances are constructed. And the film gives us multiple stages. It gives us the initial drawings. It gives us the sort of animators acting out. And then it gives us the real voices and stuff so it's just a really interesting it plots a really interesting journey of you could recut the film and basically it's the making of an animated film yeah okay anyway isn't it also is this just when the live action remakes are starting to come upon us well yes it's two years two or three years before the remake of Aladdin but yes which is featured prominently in the movie (laughs) 
Oh, it makes it sound. I really, I really enjoyed the film. I, I really enjoyed the film. I said I've got lots of things, but maybe I enjoyed it because there's lots of things to say about it, and whether those things are then, yeah. But I, but I also think that Disney, the way that we talk about Disney, the sort of, and and I've been thinking about this in terms of the classroom space, teaching with Disney, teaching about mm. Disney, the perils of teaching with Disney, and people have written articles on how they've tried to teach Disney, and the students are often resistant because it's like you shouldn't overinterpret Disney. Like Disney's the thing that we can't examine. Disney's Disney animation <laughs> is. It's, it's too popular for us to discuss and often you, it takes a bit of time to get over that resistance because students really love it and they've seen it as a child and stuff and Jason Spurb's written an article about how to, to teach with Disney and so I've been interested in, in the perils of teaching with Disney as a as a pedagogy, you mentioned pedagogy before like these are, and also it taps into what the film is saying about the messages that the Disney films communicate i.e. The, kind, the role of the happy ending, the formulate nature to these films, what that, that means for somebody who's trying to find their way and, and sort of become through these films when elements of experience aren't there. The only particular version of, ex, of human experience is, is there versus kind of teaching with Disney, which is a, a, a broader question, or, or kind of teaching about Disney, which is a broader question of should we include Disney and animation syllabi generally because they're so popular. And so, so thinking about the role of Disney and, and the usefulness of Disney as a yeah. teaching tool, this seemed to speak to me, I think, in, in interesting ways because clearly, as you said, like people are getting a lot out of these films. And, and, and that's important. Like the pleasure principle is something we we shouldn't deny of the film. People have, mm -hmm. and I enjoyed watching people get pleasure out of the Disney films. But it's Disney always invites a can always invites that cynical thread somehow. It, it sounds like we're summing up. So I guess my my two cents on it is that I think it portrays exactly as you're saying this this very real and very meaningful yeah. yep. and very valuable relationship mm -hmm. with tech with media texts that obviously meant a lot to this family um, and and means a lot to lots of people around the world. Mm -hmm. And I think it does do a good job at showcasing the way in which fandom and cinephilia can also make the text far more malleable than kind of quite dull, simplistic readings of the movie might be, right? So we can critique these movies for their heteronormativity, for all the kind of things that we can throw at them. Which is fine because they deserve it, but 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 the kind of slightly more interesting yeah. thing to do, I always think, is how are they used? And I think Owen is a really good example of someone using Disney and finding things in the Disney that the film perhaps wasn't at the forefront of the filmmaker's mind, mm -hmm. but matter mm -hmm. and are worth talking about and almost worth articulating because it highlights the way these films actually exist in culture rather than the way these films kind of exist as a kind of stale vacuum. And there is, there's always capacity to read these films subversively, to read these films, to find the things in them that, that speak to more interesting forms of identity than simply being Aladdin or Jasmine in, um, in Aladdin. Yeah. My issue with this is I think it positions that relationship as ontological rather than cultural. As in, there's just something about the magic of Disney that right, makes right, this right. available to Owen yeah. because it's Disney. And actually, I think it's cultural. I think it's the fact that the, the, the he was probably given a lot of Disney movies to watch when he was a kid because that's what we give children to watch when they're children. Yeah. Um, a mixture of that and all the other things. Well, there's that go loads along of Disney merchandise it. and you know, stuff the, like that. The more right? happenstance nature of these things, I think, could be worth highlighting, which is why I'm obsessed with the Matilda Shred yeah, Shop, yeah. because that reveals a happenstance that mm. um, I'd like it to think about more. So I think that's where I am with it. I wish I wish it didn't 
do that, but I think there are lots of interesting things in it. Janet, do you want to? Yeah. Your I mean, two cents. Uh, <laughs> really brought things down. Oh, no. <laughs> I think it's. A, I think it's a very difficult film not to have cynicism about. Right. Okay. It, it is manipulative. Oh, I God. think in terms of the view. Of, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, of autism via the parents in terms of a loss, and I think there's there's. I mean, I would add to what you've just said, Alex, by saying that. I think that Owen is a text in this film. Right. That he is a text yeah. as well as the Disney text, and he becomes a Disney version of autism, if yeah. you like. And I think that that's very um, acceptable and desirable for the parents that we get this. We get Owen within this language that is that is fine, that is acceptable. We can see in the way that he's drawn that it's a very childlike way of understanding him um, and his needs and his desires and his thoughts. And we don't get any of the, the non-Disney versions of, of him and of, of autism more, more generally, which I think, are, of course, are like the, the more interesting parts. And uh, that would be a perfect point to end it if, if I weren't a rubbish podcast host, but it just suddenly reminded me. Maybe one final thing I wanted to say was that that's very interesting you said that because also the thing that just occurred to me is that there's a whole kind of 15 minutes of the movie where it suddenly becomes obsessed with his breakup with his girlfriend yeah. and sort of turns into some other movie for a bit. Well, not in another movie, but certainly is less interested in the kind of animation mm. relationship as moments, the, the immediate reality. And yes. there's just really... I just remembered this conversation where the brother, where the father is speaking to the brother, and the brother is finding out on the phone that that Owen's I've forgotten the, I've forgotten Emily. the girlfriend Emily yes. Emily's broken up with him, um, and the father says this sounds like a brother conversation. Yes, and there's there's real tension in the film at that point, isn't there? Because we see the brother sitting on the, on the edge of the building, yeah, and he's just looking, looking out. Right. Yeah, and he look, looks he's kind of in a precarious position, and it you know, and, and that does represent where he is in that moment. That he doesn't want this news. He's going to have to pick up with his brother the emotional fallout, and then we get the filming of Owen. I think without the family framework, where that there are moments where he's outside the building, he yeah. wants to wave to Emily, she wants to ignore him. So there's all of this difficulty that isn't negotiated via Disney and I thought that was quite a good moment in the film actually yes yes I know actually absolutely um, um, but I think it might speak to some of the tensions we were about what, what parts of Owen yeah. are they comfortable dealing with and what parts are they not so comfortable dealing with yeah. or, or, or indeed or the, the parents you mean the parents yeah. us the film um, yeah. Yeah. I don't want to remove anyone from the equation really but it, it certainly yeah absolutely absolutely and, and, and maybe that, the reason that mo that bit of the film is quite striking is it feels quite different to the rest of the movie because yeah. it's a different side of Owen being revealed in, in those moments yeah and it's, it's quite that moment is much more like um, the film Rachel Israel's film Keep the Change do you know that it's, no um, it isn't a film that has animation but it's a film that is uh, centred on an autistic character played by autistic actors in the film the community of autistic um, people in New York and there are, the, the whole film is about those moments and it's very funny and it's kind of quite dark at times but it absolutely gives you you know a range of um uh, sort of ways of, yeah. of, of thinking about and engaging with with autism okay really interesting well I suppose that that's also what the film this this film made me think about autism made me think about the experience of autism the the impact on a particular family the and also the, the learning about the sort of moving into sort of assisted living and and so i i felt like that was really interesting actually the, the non-animated bits mm -hmm. where they're kind of dealing with um yeah i guess uh, and, and and maybe that's why it ends on there's a kind of a weird ending actually of the film it, it, it ends with his triumphant speech and then we get a bit of the lion king 
and I felt like they should be the other way around. That right. we, we, why end? Why end on the bit of the Lion King where Pride Rock is saved and about to be turned into and bathed in sunlight again? You want to aim on him, get, end on him giving that, giving that, giving that speech. So I felt that was that sort of summed up maybe where the film's priorities were slightly askew, mm. where it should have been the other way around. We end on yeah. Owen rather than end on yeah. on a Rafiki. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Well, we shan't end on Rafiki. No, no, no. Uh, but we will uh, end shortly. But Janet, yes, so you mentioned your film at the beginning of uh, of the of the podcast. This people will be listening to this now. So by all means, tell them what's happening with the film in the immediate future. But people might be listening to this uh, years from now. So just give us a sense of what the film project is and where you hope people might be able to access it in the next few years. Sure. So uh, the film that I've just finished making is called Autism Plays Itself. Uh, it's a it's a short film, seventeen minutes, um, and it is uh, it it is based on sequences of an archive film that was shot in uh, in a clinic in the Maudsley Hospital in London in 1957, and it's one of the first mentions of autism that we could find in in medical film, um, and it's. A, a film that's half an hour long in its original form. It's full of medical intertitles and then sequences of very short sequences of children, children behaving, playing in in this clinic. And it always seemed like a really dark, despairing, terrible film to me that I found difficult to watch. And we workshopped sequences of the film it, it, with with autistic communities, um, along with other film extracts, trying to kind of you know get responses what do people think of this um and at some one point i thought this is just too difficult to show people you know it's too disturbing potentially but eventually in the course of a project this long i got to work with people over a long period of time establish relationships and i said to them you know how do you feel about watching a film that's quite difficult I gave them a description of it would you like to watch it in advance how do you feel about responding to it in a podcast studio so that's what we did and none of them wanted to see it in advance they wanted to be in the moment so i had three uh, people responding um ash lloyden ethan lyons and sophie broadgate um who are all artists and writers and recorded their responses and then i edited it created a you know, a, a, a paper edit and then worked with Sasha Litvin-Saver, a colleague at Queen Mary, uh, on how we put this together. So it's a film that very much um, engages with the movement of the children in the film. Um, so it's very much sort of stimmy and it's, and it's, it's, it's short, looped repetitions of behaviour and these are interpreted by the respondents and they're, they're really kind of like quite witty, quite incisive things that are said about these children that completely opened up the the behaviour um, that we watch in, in, in this clinical context and it's got, I think it's got beautiful liveliness to it where people are saying, you know, look look what that child's doing and you kind of go, oh yeah, yeah of, course of course they're doing that they're trying to work out, you know what, how that light works or, or they want, want the sensation of, of stepping into water um, and it, I think it really brings out the, the, the qualities of animation that are in a, a, an autistic apprehension of the world you know that, that it's about touching and feeling and pushing things and doing things and that experience of you, your whole body being animated um, in, in relation 
And I think that that's such a different way of thinking about autism. And so I'm really, really happy that the project for me ended on that film because it was just an, an autistic interpretation of the of the history of, aut of of clinical views of autism that upends everything that's been said about it. So it's now being submitted to festivals. Great. It will eventually be on our website, the Autism Through Cinema website, um, and possibly, you know, hopefully on YouTube and so on for, for longer. And the website's, uh, is it autismthroughcinema.org? Yeah. We'll link to that. Yeah, we'll absolutely link to that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> that sounds really exciting and, and uh, yeah, looking forward to seeing it. Um, right, yeah, talking of, of, of plugging. Uh, right, uh, fantasy-animation.org is our website where you can find the uh, previous uh, podcast episodes and blog entries. Disney, Disney crops up a bit. Disney yeah. crops up here and Just there. Just a little bit here and people um, yeah. listening who are research active are interested in any of the ideas we've presented, we'd love to hear some ideas for blog posts in the future. Um, I think we touched on lots of interesting things there, but didn't do justice to all of them because that's the nature of a podcast yeah, so yeah. if anyone wants to get their teeth into it that'd be really helpful to hear from you you can follow us on social media whatever it's called or however it exists at fananim research yeah. f-a-n-a-n-i-m research and you can use that same handle f-a-n-a-n-i-m research um, to suggest uh, oh at gmail.com to suggest um, episodes for our future footnote episodes yeah uh, otherwise Janet thanks so much for coming yeah, on the podcast you. and talking us through um an interesting movie uh, and a movie that highlights a, an e more, even more interesting set of research and world out, out, that you've been working on the last few years. So it's been really delightful to hear about yeah. it. My pleasure. Thanks very much. Um, we'll see you next time. Bye. <laughs>